Psalm 130. Out of the depths have I cried unto Thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let Thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If Thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with Thee, that Thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in His word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. More, I say, than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with Him is plenteous redemption, and He shall redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Our gracious God, when we read words like this, it is true that the heavens open before us and looking up we see a merciful Father, we see an all-sufficient and precious Savior calling us upward, as it were, and yet at the same time and and as we've come to the incarnation of Christ, we see not only calling us upward, but actually coming down to us in our, in our condition with all of the woe and misery. This is, this is the gospel, and we thank you for it even here in this ancient psalm. Grant us your spirit that we might have fellowship with you Oh God, in the way that is depicted here in this psalm, to wait upon you and to hope in you with great boldness, with great confidence and assurance, as we have warrant, because Jesus Christ has appeared. In his name we pray, amen. Last time, two weeks ago, we worked our way through question 21 and 22 of the Shorter Catechism. And so I just want to read these very quickly and think about what we just went through and then move forward into the offices of prophet, priest, and king, which Christ exercises. Question 21 who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And then 22, Christ the Son of God became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived in the power by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her, yet without sin. And there's many details in these, and they're summed up nicely uh, in, the, in, in one of the great historic lines of the church in the Nicene Creed, which we've read, and which I repeat now, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. What a, just a wonderful statement. Well, so we came last time then to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his conception and his birth of Mary. Christ's incarnation, says Jonathan Edwards in his history of the work of redemption, 
Christ's incarnation was a greater and more wonderful thing than had ever yet come to pass. It was a great thing for God to make the creature, but not so great as for the Creator Himself to become a creature. God becoming man was greater than all. And this was our subject last time, God becoming man. Greater than all, says Edwards. And I think that there is good reason for him saying that, because he who was purely in the form of God, as we read in Philippians 2, in the form of God, that is, when we say the form of God, we're thinking of him who is infinite and immortal and invisible, immutable, impassable, all of these divine attributes that we've studied. Here he now assumes human nature to himself for the express purpose of offering himself up, a sacrifice at the end of the age, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's the express purpose of him taking on our flesh. Much more was involved than that. That was the, that was the supreme end for which he came, to take our sins upon him. So he took our whole nature, as we talked about last time, body and soul, a true body, a reasonable soul, with all the infirmities and all the passions that that human nature is capable of. All of them. He took them on. Now, says John Owen, now was his body capable of pain, his soul of sorrow, and his nature of disillusion. All of, all of that was necessary. It was indispensably necessary for what he came to accomplish. This is, this is just established biblical Christian doctrine. We all, we all know it. We all love it, hopefully. Uh, if we're Christians, we do love it. So we've come now in the order of the catechism questions to the time of Christ's humiliation. Now Edward says, says more. I want to continue the quote that I started by Edward's. In coming to the time of Christ's humiliation, which is from his incarnation, not his, not his birth, but his incarnation, which is his conception. And it's fine to call his birth the incarnation. That's a, that's a general way of saying it. There, there, there's really no issue with that. But if we want to get very meticulous and specific, uh, it's the moment he took on our nature. And that was in the womb, not out of the womb. In the womb. So from the incarnation to the resurrection, traditionally is understood as the time of his humiliation, when, as Owen said, his body was capable of pain, his soul was capable of sorrow, and his body was capable of disillusion. So this is what Edward says about this most remarkable period of time, which he calls it, the time of Christ's humiliation. This was the most remarkable period of time that ever was or ever will be. All that was done before the beginning of the world in the eternal councils chiefly respected this period now. And though it was but 30 years, yet more was done in this period of time than had been done from the beginning of the world. Though much had been done, though millions of sacrifices had been offered, yet nothing was done to actually purchase redemption before Christ's incarnation. No part of the price was offered until now. But as soon as He was incarnate, the purchase began. The whole time of his humiliation until the morning he rose from the dead was taken up in this purchase. Well, that's, that's, uh, I've read that quote so many times uh, the past couple of weeks because I love it so much. It's, it's, it puts everything in perspective. Well, 
this morning then, we're, we're, we're in the time of his humiliation. We'll be in it still next week. So for the next two weeks, this morning we're going to look at the time of Christ's humiliation as, as a prophet, and then next week as a priest, that is, making that sacrifice, offering himself as the priests offered the, the uh, victims, the sacrifices. They offered sacrifices. He was the sacrifice which he himself offered. So next week, that will be our subject, which is, is holy ground. We're on holy ground now. I mean, if you think about Moses at the burning bush, there he, he was on holy ground. And yet, the moment of Christ's incarnation, the whole world, in a sense, became holy ground while he tread uh, upon the earth. And, and so we're, in, we're on holy ground now as we think about him in the body, in the time of his humiliation, because he's still in a body. It's glorified, all-sufficient, all-powerful, no limitations, no disillusion, no pain, no sorrow. But this is where we're at this morning. So this morning, uh, this is our subject, Christ as prophet, in the time of his humiliation. And then we'll have three more weeks after that. So including this morning, there's five more weeks. That's the plan. Uh, This morning, next week, humiliation. The final three weeks will be the period of his exaltation, his session, as it's called, in heaven, uh, which will be most glorious. So let's read. Actually, I want to speed through the the last five questions that we have come to. Uh, Question 23, then following off from where we left off last week. What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ as our Redeemer executed the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. You, You see how that sets up for the next five questions that follow. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a nice little, nice little outline. And we don't want to go through um, prophet, priest, king, and then humiliation, and then exaltation. That's, that's the order. I mean, when you write down words, you, you immediately limit yourself from the full thought of something because you have to go sequentially. And that's, that's simply what the catechism is doing. But we, we want to try to chronologically go through this. And so uh, I want to take the time of Christ's humiliation. We'll deal with that, that question and answer in general as we're thinking about him as, as prophet and priest in the time of his humiliation. We're, we're going to defer on the king to just talk about that once in the time of his exaltation uh, because much of his kingship, he was king in the time of his humiliation. And we'll, we will see that. But... Uh, the, 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 the glory and the power of his kingship was revealed after he had accomplished redemption was, and was exalted on high. He was the one in Psalm 24 who, having a, clean, uh, having a pure heart and clean hands, ascended up into the hill of the Lord uh, with all glory and power. Uh, he is the king of glory. So, so we're going to combine both of those, but really stress his, his, his kingship uh, in his state of exaltation. So, uh, question 24. How doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? This is our concern this morning. Christ executed the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. 
And then 25, how doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executed the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Question 26, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us to himself. Wonderful, wonderful assertion and truth. In ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Question 27, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Answer, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, and in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. And then finally, question 28, wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day and wrap up history, all of history. As king, that is what he is going to do. And it's a day in our future. I don't say in the future, I say in our future. Because it is in our future we will personally experience his coming in one way or another and his final supremacy in all things. Okay, so let's come to Christ as mediator in the offices, generally speaking first, of prophet, priest, and king, all three. Uh, When we use the terms, as I hope you know, we're simply following the direction of Scripture, uh, which expressly tells us these things. He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, that's taken straight out of Psalm 110 and it's quoted uh, numerous times in the New Testament the apostles knew it well he was a prophet like unto Moses that was the promise in Deuteronomy 18 whom men must obey or be destroyed Uh, very solemn words and then he is to be a king upon the throne of David whose government and peace shall never end. That comes from Isaiah 9. Now, I just chose those, um, but there are so many. I mean, the, the entire Old Testament is full of these uh, adumbrations, if you will, these prefigurations of, and foreshadowings of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Virtually, you look at the furniture in the tabernacle, for example. Uh, just go line by line, article by article and you see Christ being prefigured. Well, this is true of these persons as well, the prophets and the priests and the kings. Uh, All of them. Uh, In the whole entire history of Israel under the Old Covenant, uh, they were just like so many little Christs, you might say. Uh, Christ being the Greek word for uh, anointed. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. To call him a prophet or a priest or a king in isolation from the other two is somewhat inaccurate because he, he, he was the perfection of all three wrapped up into a single person. Uh, there's really not a good word to, to describe this, but he's the captain of our salvation in all three of these offices. Well, these prophets and priests and kings, they were anointed for a time, and that's all. A time, a time only. 
He was appointed before all time in the eternal councils. You remember the covenant of redemption. Before all time and forever. So that's the similarities between the prophets, priests, and kings of old and Christ, but then the vital differences as well. So, in the fullness of time, as it says in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, he came. And that's where we're at now. And after speaking by so many many prophets, God finally speaks to us in his son. That's out of Hebrews chapter 1. He speaks to us in His Son. We'll turn to Luke chapter 2. We were in Luke 1 when we looked at His conception. In Luke 2, we look at His birth. And the point that I want to make here is that even before Christ was old enough to utter a word, before he could speak himself with human lips as a prophet, uh, God was speaking in him and by him the very night that he was born. It was as if Christ, as prophet, taking on flesh, here's the eternal Son of God, it's as if he was speaking in the parable of his birth. He was saying something about God's will for our salvation. This is marvelous. It's why we love Christmas. Uh, well, there's many reasons we can love Christian. This is uh, love Christmas. This is the great reason why we are compelled as Christians to love Christmas. It was it was Christ as prophet announcing himself as the will of God for our salvation. This is, this is just so wonderful. So. Luke 2, let's start in verse 7. And she, Mary, brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there was in this, were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Can't, you, you can't uh, hear this without a thrill running through your whole body and mind. Here's the Advent, Christ's sheer appearance. And it's, as I said, His first prophetic act in the flesh, as it were. Uh, Emmanuel, God with us. So his first prophetic overture to the world. Uh, we know Wesley's great hymn, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Calvin says this, and it's almost as poetic as Wesley. It's a beautiful statement. God would have remained hidden afar off if Christ's splendor had not beamed upon us. And that's what we see the night of Jesus' birth. 
This is, you might call it, unconditional goodwill. I don't say unconditional election. I say unconditional goodwill toward men. That is, toward all men whose nature he shares. Every single one he's expressing in the birth of Jesus goodwill and peace. Good tidings of great joy to all men. And in your mind, the secret decrees may come up, well, is it really to all men? It is to all men. That is what the angel said, and and we believe it. To all men whose nature he now shares. We're not contemplating the secret decrees, but we're contemplating the things that, that here the night of his birth he is openly revealed, publicly displayed, and it's for all men. In all the 33 years that followed, everything in the time of his humiliation was a public display of God's goodwill towards men. We have to understand it that way. All of it is for us men and for our salvation. Everything the angel said to the shepherds who were abiding in the field, every word is ours. It belongs to us. The Savior born in the manger, Christ the Lord, He belongs to us, to all men everywhere. This is the free offer of the gospel, and God means it. Not not only the manger, not only Bethlehem, but we can follow the whole course of His humiliation in all of His acts, all of His words, all of His deeds, all of His signs and miracles, all of His acts of mercy, all the way to His being on the tree, bearing the curse of God in our nature. All of this, and most of all, that death on the cross belongs to all men everywhere. I don't say that He died for all men. We we don't say that He died for all men and took the sins of all men upon Him. But He's offering His death to all men in that capacity. There's a wonderful quote by John Preston, one of the early Puritans. Go, he says, tell every man without exception that there is good news for him. Christ is dead for him. And there's a difference. Christ dying for a man and Christ being dead for him. If you, if you think about it, you'll, you'll understand the difference. This is what Preston says. Christ is dead for him, for every man. And if he will take him and accept of his righteousness, he shall have it. Well, so we want to follow. We're getting ahead of ourselves when we're coming to the death of Christ. That's the subject next week. But, but I just want us all to be clear on this, that the entire time of Christ's humiliation was a public display of God's goodwill towards men. He's saying, here is my salvation. Take him freely. Drink of him. Eat of him. He's your light and your life. And this is the same, this is the same free offer that's extended to this very day and will till the day that Christ returns. It's, it's, it's a marvelous, marvelous thing. So Luke records, as we move on, the child grew. We're, we're, we're staying at this point primarily in Luke. We want to move, shift to the Gospel of John in a moment. But Luke records, the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then he grew up through his years. There's scant record when he was 12 years old is about it. And then he comes to the Jordan and he's baptized by John. And the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And he's anointed. He's anointed to to preach the gospel now. And then he's led by the same Spirit 
thrust, Mark says. He's thrust out by the Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness. And then he comes back victorious. He returns to his hometown of Nazareth. And then we move forward in Luke to chapter 4. And I just want to read a few verses here starting in verse 16. He came to Nazareth now where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So now he's reading from the prophets which testify of him. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, or the season of God's favor, you, you could say just as well with that phrase, the season of God's favor. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened upon him. And he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. That is such a bold, such a marvelous such a saving statement. It, 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 it's amazing. I don't want to use that word amazing too much because it waters it down. But this is, this is truly so. Well, what's Jesus doing here when he's reading from the prophets and then saying, I'm the one that that prophet is speaking of? He's revealing from that prophet, from Isaiah, the will of God for the salvation of men. He, he, in effect, he's saying, I am here. The Father has sent me into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. This is a prophetic message. He, he could also say, I am the will of God for your salvation. In a sense, he's coming to reveal it, but in revealing himself, he's revealing that he himself is the will of God for their salvation. Isaiah in another place says this, and this could equally be said of Christ or be said by him. Look on me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, all you poor, all you blind, all you bruised, that he's addressing there in that, in, out of Isaiah 61 that he just read. And, and this, there's so much to talk about when we talk about Christ's prophetic ministry in the time of his humiliation. And we just we can't, we can't take it all in in just a few minutes. Uh, but I'm really just wanting to concentrate on this point. Uh, and, it, and it is the heart and the soul of Christ's prophetic ministry in the time of his humiliation. Wherever he goes, in Nazareth, Capernaum, Galilee, Jerusalem, Samaria... He's, he's doing two things, really. He's, he's confronting men who are in their misery and for the most part don't know it. This is the state of natural man. He's confronting these men in misery with his majesty. Those are the two things that he's doing continually. This is what you are and this is what I am, confronting you and coming upon you, as it were. It's like a two-edged sword. Man's misery 
Christ's majesty. And with the one he cuts, and with the other he, he heals and makes whole and saves, and brings salvation, which is himself. Men insufficient, he's confronting with his all-sufficiency. So we, we can go through the Gospel of John and see time and time again, this is exactly what he's doing. And if you have this in your mind and you go through it, you just see it clear as day. So there's the woman of Samaria. And, and I'm just covering a few here. But you can go just, it, it's all over the place. The woman in Samaria, he comes to her, she's drawing out water. Because as a human being, she thirsts. She needs water. So she's coming to draw water. And this is what Jesus says. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that speaks to you, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water springing up into eternal life. In other words, I am the living water. And I'm coming to you as the living water. We can go to chapter 6 in John. There's more than 5,000 men and women and even children hungering. And he fed them all. He sat them down in the field, which is the fulfillment of a prophecy out of Isaiah also, if I recall. Uh, there he is feeding them on the green grass. And this is what he says to them. The bread of heaven is he that cometh down from heaven. What you're eating is not living bread. You'll eat it and you'll die, just like the fathers did in the, in, when they ate the manna in the wilderness. But he that comes down from heaven is the bread of heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, but shall live forever. So there's living water. There's the bread of life. This is what he is. These are the things we are sustained in our mortal life with. And yet they can only sustain our mortal life. They can only sustain our body, not our soul. But Jesus is saying that the water and the food of your soul is me, myself. I am the salvation of God. Come down into the world. Eat of me. Drink of me. And live forever. You're insufficient. I'm all sufficient. This, this is it's such a simple message. And then we can come a little further and see the man born blind from birth who Jesus healed, gave him sight. He, was, he never had it. He didn't have it and lose it. He never had it. And we never we were born alienated from the life of God, darkened in our understanding, naturally at enmity with God, unable to move a little toe in his direction. We couldn't do it. And so to the man born blind, he says, he heals him and he says, I am the light of the world. This is another one of those great I am statements of the Lord. We would be lost in the world, utterly lost without light. And he's saying, you can have light in the world, but even that light will turn to darkness at last. Darkness will win the day in your life if you don't have the light of life, which can take you past the grave. And then Martha in Bethany, John chapter 11, grieving for her dead brother Lazarus, who Jesus raised. And, th and this is what he does as prophet by his word and the spirit every time somebody is born again. It's Christ Jesus as prophet. And we'll, we'll come to this a couple of weeks down the road when we're looking at his, his office of prophet as he's exercising it in his state of exaltation. It, it, it's, there's so much power and glory there. But now he's in his state of humiliation. So much of his power is hidden. 
but it's not hidden to the ones whom even in this world he's effectually calling. So he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, who was dead, who had no will, no free will, if you will, to obey, because he, he, the, the ear, the, the sound couldn't even come into his ears. The ears themselves were dead. And yet he raises him from the dead by his almighty power. And then he says to Martha, actually I have this backwards, he says this first, and then he raises Lazarus, I believe. But he says, I am, again, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So you see all these cases, again, he's confronting man's insufficiency and paucity, poverty and nakedness and need with simply his majesty and his all-sufficiency. This is, this is why we love him. Well, that's, that's, that's all really... Uh, and again, it, it's been very painful excluding so many things that could be said about Christ's prophetic work in the time of his humiliation. We, ha- we, we can think of the Pharisees. We haven't even brought up the Pharisees. Uh, maybe we'll have time for that down the road. I don't know. But in everything that, that we've just been looking at this morning, which is one basic point, I am, the, I am the will of God for the salvation of the world. We've been looking at the free offer. That's what we've been looking at, the free offer. Or, or you can call it also theologically the general call of the gospel as opposed to the effectual call, which is also the work of Christ as prophet. As, as prophet, he sends forth a general call. Everyone who hears it is hearing the voice of the prophet of God sent down into the world. But in order to have all these things that are in himself that he offers, he must do something more than just sound in the ears. He has to probe the heart. He has to pierce the heart. And he does this as well. He did it on earth, but we're going to look more in depth at him doing it from heaven in sending the Holy Spirit into the world. The moment he was exalted in heaven... He received the promise of the Spirit. He sent him forth into the world to convince men of their sin and misery, to convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This is the work of Christ in his estate of exaltation as prophet primarily now of the church. That is all those that the Father has given him. Every single one of which he will say, in effect, Lazarus, come forth. If we're a Christian, he has said that to us, but he's used our name, and we responded. So, again, this has been the general call that we've been looking at this morning, and it's, it's just so utterly crucial. But the effectual call is something more. Remember what John Preston said earlier, if any man will take him, he comes to all men. But if any man will take him and accept of his righteousness, he shall have it. Well, that if is a very big if. If any man will come to him and take him. And we ought to know that this is what no natural man ever descended from Adam can of his own do. It's impossible to do. So it's, it's quite a paradox and a, and, a, and a quandary. It is an impossibility, which is, is one of the reasons why the disciples asked him when he said, a rich man can't enter heaven. And again, he's speaking allegorically. You can have lots of money and get into heaven. He means someone who is rich that doesn't recognize his poverty. Because all men are poverty stricken. 
in their sin, dead in transgressions and sins. The point Jesus was making is that a man that feels that he's self-sufficient and has need of nothing cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples didn't quite yet understand that. And so they say, who then can enter the kingdom of heaven? And he says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. No man, says Jesus, can come to me except the Father who hath sent me draw him. That's such a categorical statement. And it takes his voice as, as, as prophet in order to enable us to come. Otherwise, we will not come. We cannot come. So the effectual call is what we want to look at next time, which intimately involves the work of Christ as prophet and is a state of exaltation. Revealing by His Word and His Spirit the will of God for our salvation. All right, well, we have a couple of minutes. I'm done. And I haven't asked at all, and it's pained me every week that, that I've run out of time and, and haven't had time to ask if there's any questions. So we'll close early unless somebody has a question about anything that we've talked about. Would you define hypostatic union? Would I define it? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's um, well, can you define it? That's why I'm asking you. Okay, I was stalling for time. Uh, <laughs> a hypostatic union is simply the, the inseparable union of two natures in the one divine person of the Son of God. It's, as, I, as I've stressed, it's not like this, this generic person um, that the Holy Spirit created in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Athanasius said, he became man, he did not assume a man. And, and that's an important distinction. Uh, the Son of God didn't come and just assume a whole person. He assumed our nature. So the union is in the person. That's why it's called the personal union or the hypostatic union. Hypostatic is just the Greek word for personal. So it's a union not of like God and man in this, this third generic person that makes up the person. It's not the union of the two natures in a sense that makes up the person. In a, in a sense we can say that. But, but ultimately, we have to understand, as Christians, we're worshiping him as God. He's God come down and assuming our flesh. So the hypostatic union is the second person of the Trinity taking human nature to his own divine nature and sealing that union forever and ever, never to be separated. So that's, that's the hypostatic okay, union. So hypo means person. Uh, hypo, actually, no. It comes, like the Greek word is hypostases, and hupo means under, and I'm getting a little too technical here beyond my knowledge, but stasis I think is like, uh, like, like, uh, well, static, I, I think of in this context is like fixed. It's like what? Fixed. Fit. Static. Well, well, let, uh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't disagree with that. But let, let me not divide the word up. Let me just say that the, the word, that it, the hypostasis, means a person. It means a person. So we'll just keep them together because I'm out of my depth. I'm the new Greek scholar by any means. So I don't want to start dividing compound Greek words here. So that's the hypostatic union. Does that make sense? Uh, that helps, yeah. Okay. Does anybody else have a comment on that? I mean, that might help. 
idea that it's united, not linked. Yes. Yes. She likes the fact that, that in the personal union that it, 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 it is a union. It's not just a, as, as Nestorius wanted to call it, a, uh, a, well, not a juxtaposition, but a conjunction. That's the word that, that Nestorius liked, a conjunction. And again, when we think of a conjunction, we think of a little word like and or, or connecting two words that, that aren't really united, they're just related, they're associated. But that, that is not the hypostatic union. Anything else? All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you, by your Spirit, magnify him more in our mind's eye so that our faith might rest more surely and might act more vigorously upon himself, who is our Savior forevermore. Amen.